Hey, everybody, this is Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. We're at this point in time where the state is in complete crisis. Now that we've got Measure 110 passed, which I'm adamantly opposed to, the drug courts are disappearing. I have seen so many people come through and come get into recovery because they were mandated by the courts. And the fact that Oregon has allowed us to get to the point where we just don't even have nearly enough, that is the problem, is hospital capacity. Democrats, it's an indictment against their leadership. All right, everybody. Today, we're really excited to bring you Bridget Barton. She is one of the top tier candidates who is running for the governorship on the GOP side of things. Bridget is a well-known name in Oregon politics. She's worked in political consulting, public relations, and PR for over 30 years in the state. She's also one of the co-founders of Brainstorm Northwest, which was a conservative magazine she started in 1997, which has since become the Oregon Transformation Project. She sits on a bunch of local boards, including the Clackamas Community Children and Youth Coordinating Council, as well as many other things. So, Ben, what did you think of the episode? I thought it was a fascinating conversation, particularly when we spoke. She She's very open about her struggle with addiction and how she's now in recovery. And um, so we talked about her personal story and also how that would impact her public policy. And I thought that was a great conversation. I also appreciated her candor when we talked about campaign finance reform. She was very straightforward about what she thought. We asked her about her $150,000 contribution from a 501c4, and she's very transparent about it, which I appreciated. Of course, I disagree with uh, much of the conversation about vaccines and actually several other topics, but I did think she made a case that is probably in line with your party and and what they think. What, what was your main takeaway? Yeah, I thought one something newsworthy, basically, of what she said, which I feel like other candidates have sort of shied away from, is that she would basically do everything in her power as governor to stop, control, pester uh, Measure 110, which for folks who haven't listened, you should definitely go check out our episode with Matt Sutton from the Drug Policy Alliance. That's the dark money group that she was referring to, who funded, I think, $2.5 million from that group, and then another $2.5 million from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative to help pass this Measure 110, which decriminalized drugs across Oregon. She is heavily opposed to that, and I thought that was really interesting how she basically talked about how she would try to hinder this in any way possible. She, she, she said that she thinks voters have already changed their mind on Measure 110, which it literally just passed in 2020. She says she's convinced that voters have already changed their mind and that if it was referred back to voters, they would overturn it already, which interesting take. I'm not sure. That I, I'm not sure I agree with that or that I've seen evidence to suggest that, but um, it's an interesting position. Yeah, interesting position for sure. And then the other thing that she had said is, so very recently, President Biden uh, announced an executive order that OSHA will be working to basically mandate that businesses that employ at least 100 people either have all their employees vaccinated or are taking COVID tests on a weekly basis. She basically pledged that if she was governor, she will do you know everything within her power and within her grasp to resist that and stop businesses who don't want to from complying for that. So uh, certainly going to be a clash with the Biden administration if we were to see uh, a Governor Barton in Oregon. Despite being what she describes as personally, quote, pro-vaccine and being vaccinated herself, she still would oppose the Biden vaccine mandates. Yeah, and I think that thinking there sort of falls in line with what 
Uh, we had Bud Pierce saying from the week before, not saying he has a particular position on this or not since it recently just came out. But but yeah, some really interesting stuff there on some of the cultural and the social issues, which I feel like we generally don't get to talk about that much. So definitely enjoyed having her on. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll just jump right into the episode. We did have a little bit of audio difficulties in this episode. Um, so we will see if our producer magician, Buddy Terry, is able to remedy those. But um, there are uh, a few audio issues that hopefully won't be too distracting as you're listening. But thank you again for subscribing and listening to our podcast. We really appreciate your support. And uh, with that, let's jump into the interview. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Today, we're really excited to have Bridget Barton with us, who is running to be the next governor of Oregon. Bridget, how's it going from the other side of West Lynn today? It's going great. I'm happy to be home. I've been on the road all day. Looking forward to this, but it's been uh, been over in Coos Bay. Gorgeous oh, over cool. there. Yeah, beautiful drive home. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I was just in D.C. for a couple of weeks and it was disgustingly humid and disgustingly hot, uh, just like the, the actual swamp that it is. Uh, yes. So, yeah, and I'm it very is a swamp. Yes. it literally is a swamp, like right. despite your political beliefs, it actually is, is a horrible swamp. It's a horrible right. place to live. But yeah, really excited to be back in Oregon and, and have you on the podcast today. So generally, we just kick things off. All of us are political nerds. We know that you're an actual political consultant too. tell us what was your interest in politics? Why do you want to get into it? What's kind of your background on that? Well, you know, actually I actually have a degree in political philosophy from College of William and Mary, so I grew up in Williamsburg. That, that'll inspire you all by itself to get engaged in the, in the American experience. And so um, I, uh, you know, I kind of, after some dabbling in some different careers, I just, I got very interested first in education issues uh, when I saw the uh, beginnings of the charter school movement. When it first came, I was sort of invented in Minnesota, if you didn't know. And when I read about it and saw that, I thought, this is really interesting. I had young children and I knew that the schools needed reform. And that was the first thing I did. And it, uh, I reached out to Cascade Policy Institute here in Oregon, which had uh, written an article about it. And that had that's how I learned about it. And um, got engaged in that issue to begin with. And then that following that came the whole SimCam thing. And I wrote an article that a lot of people have, have continued to refer to called the SimCam Flim Flam um, and was very critical of that attempt at school reform. And from the education issues, then I got involved with my business, long-term business partner, Jim Passero. We started a magazine that was uh, covered business and policy and political issues around state. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, we did that through, uh, that was supported by a lot of business leaders in the community across the state. And that ran through the recession. And at the point of the recession, then we flipped that into an online newsletter, which continues to this day. So I have, you know, people say, say I'm a political consultant. At this point in time, and for the last few years, I haven't actually been doing any political consulting. Um, at about three and a half years ago, we actually began to manage a fairly large uh, 501c4 and, uh, and a PAC that uh, kind of turned us from being people that were collecting money and helping candidates to uh, being donors around the state, finding new leadership around the state. Mm. It's, been a, it's been an interesting experience to go through some of those phases, but mostly it comes down to that I've been um, involved in public policy for, well, whatever's that, 90, 1990, so at 30 plus, 30 years. 
Mm. So my my question, this is a question that could be asked to a few candidates, potential candidates on both sides of the governor's race, but you've chosen to, for your first public office, to be the highest office in Oregon, the office that you're running for. So why did you choose to pursue the office of governor rather than running for a legislative position or a county commission seat or something at, at a more local level? Well, first, I want to say again, 30 years of public policy experience in the state and 30 years plus, 40 years actually, of watching the state go downhill under Democrats only controlling every issue in the state. So all the policy ideas over those years that we put forward and all the efforts to try to build bridges and and do some work to get some good policy in place, they just fell on deaf ears. Well, so now, here we go, we're at this point in time where the state is in complete crisis. I feel that I have the experience that I need. I have the knowledge that I need. And I, I think I fit the proper profile at this point in time for Oregonians to lead as governor because I come in as a problem solver. I'm not someone that wants to come in and get that job. I don't, I don't want to get the job of governor. I want to do the job of governor. And we have to have somebody who's a problem solver at this point, not a partisan elected official, I think it's actually very critical at this juncture, a solution-oriented problem solver. I think the public is fed up with hyperbolic partisan politics. They're looking for somebody that wants to solve problems. So I know it's a big leap, but I do feel qualified. You know, I'm very comfortable working in the media. Uh, and, I, and as I said, I've got the background and the experience. And I also come in with the network of business, political, and just, you know, everyday community grassroots leaders. I know the people. I can put this campaign together. We looked at it hard before I decided to take on such a big slot. It, it's a big jump. It yeah. Is. And, and oh, sorry, oh, I was go just, just going to briefly say, too, I think, like, you know, oftentimes we hear sometimes on the right, you'll have people who like were business CEOs and say, we need to run government like a business, but you're actually not coming to this as a stranger of politics. You've been involved in it for a long time. So it's a different perspective. And it's not like, you know, the statewide players are going to be new to you or, or anything like that. So it's certainly um, not the same kind of leap that, for example, like a Donald Trump, when he ran, it was very much like an outsider, didn't know anything about politics, didn't care, different yeah. situation here, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Come in, like I said, coming in with the policy experience is a whole different thing. It's a very problem-solving orientation. Yeah. yeah. And so, Bridget, before we dive into a number of different policy issues, there is a more sort of personal side to you, which you wanted to, to talk about, and it's your, your battle with addiction. And I know that's something that you had listed on your website as something that you know you had struggled with in the past. And I would say it's honestly probably one of the most pressing and underlying issues right now facing not only our state, but also different states across the country. So before we dive into the policy, and because you've, you are someone who has acknowledged that they had an addiction problem before and has successfully battled it, could you just kind of give us like, and I think this will be helpful kind of for talking about some of the policy issues we'll get to in just a second, but what was it like to be an addict and to recognize that you had an issue and like what what did kind of the journey look like to overcome that? That's a good question. And it's funny, not very many people are willing to ask it. Well, it's a long time ago. I've been in recovery from alcoholism. I was not a drug addict, but an alcoholic, which is the same thing in my view. It's just a different drug. But um, I started drinking when I was 14. I stopped when I was 28. I'm 68 now. So I have uh, 40 years in recovery. Wow. Um, 
In fact, my, as they say, AA birthday is uh, on the 15th of September. Wow, congrats. So I think what people need to understand about addiction of any kind, because it's all, it's the same. Some drugs can, can be worse to get off of, so to speak, than others. Actually, cigarettes are one of the hardest things to come off of, nicotine, is that you have to make people's lives a living hell. Most people have to get whatever we've heard the expression, you have to hit bottom. And people can hit bottom in different ways. It can look different. It can feel different. But most of the time, people have had to, you have had to have a lot of hard stops thrown in front of you. And most of the time, like for me, I went right over the top of several of them. Uh, you know, uh, slamming into a light post in, in my car. Uh, you know, constant sickness, constant problems of blackouts and all. And you, you can see these people on the street, they are not leading happy lives. They are not comfortable in any way, right? They're, that is a miserable existence. And my existence toward the end of my drinking was like that. It was a miserable, miserable existence. And yet you will keep going. So it takes a lot of hard stops. It takes, uh, as I say, you, you gotta make someone's life a living hell. And my life became a living hell. And I came to the point in the road where, and, and I say, I, there was more than one time that I contemplated suicide. You okay. usually hitting bottom means for any kind of an addict means that you decide one day, do I want to live or do I want to die? So the, the opportunity to choose the path back toward life has to be there somehow. But, and it doesn't mean that people will always choose it. As I said, I had that, I had that in front of me a few times before I finally decided. For me, I, after thinking of, thinking about suicide a couple of times and sitting in a parking lot and deciding should I, shouldn't I, oddly enough, it came down to my parents saying to me over the phone, you know, you can never have a life. You will never get married. You'll never have children. You'll never have anything unless you decide to stop drinking. And it was the, one of the first times they had ever confronted me. I had friends do it. And so I, I thought, okay, I'm going to take that to heart. And then my boss at work caught me drinking on the job and said, you're, you're either going to go to treatment or you're fired. And so I had tremendous amount of debt. I could see no life in front of me. Still, it was a hard choice because... The, uh, what you know, you know, understand about alcoholics or drug addicts is it takes a moment, what they call a moment of clarity, um, when you actually aren't completely hammered or coked out or whatever your drug of choice is, that you can have that one moment of clarity where you can think for just one second, okay, I'm going to make a different choice. And so at that moment, I decided to check myself into treatment. And that opportunity was there because I had a job and insurance coverage that I could put, could put me there. And it's one of the reasons I have a, a woman on my Facebook who do, is doing a video for me, who was a former addict who went to jail and she has this whole group of friends. I believe she was a meth addict. She has a whole group of friends. They all went to jail and now they're all, you know, recovered. And she has this darling little boy. She's got a wonderful life. And she said, you know, I was sitting there in jail and I thought, okay, you're in your 20s, you got two degrees, two college degrees. What the hell are you doing? 
with, you know, she had her moment of clarity. She had her, her bottom and it was in jail. So she is, as am I, a proponent of incarceration as an option for addicts and alcoholics who have gotten themselves in trouble. Now we, that we've got measure 110 passed, which I'm adamantly opposed to, that op option is no longer available. The drug courts are disappearing. It is a tool that gets so many people in recovery. I can't tell you, I have 40 years of this. I have seen so many people come through and come get into recovery because they were mandated by the courts. It's countless lives saved, countless lives saved. And then think of the, the you know, collateral effect of that, of the, of the damage they're not doing and the, the people in their families that get to be participate and the children they have that learn from them not to do this. I really appreciate you sharing your story. My um, addiction is an issue that is significant in my family as well. My brother has struggled with addiction and it's led to a series of, as you know, addiction is never just a problem about addiction. It cascades into your job and into your housing and into all these other things. Yeah. But yeah. in my in my brother's experience, well, first of all, like my parents trying to navigate the system as we call it, like support services, criminal justice was an absolute nightmare for my parents, just really challenging. But then I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to process what you just said about criminal justice system as a means for recovery, because it didn't, that system didn't have that impact on my brother. And in fact, I think my parents in some ways think that it made things worse because he had a criminal record, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious if, you know, and I think the point here is everybody's situation is very different and their needs yes. might be different and maybe they have a mental health need in addition to their addiction, mm -hmm. et cetera. So I guess my, broadly speaking, if you were governor, I don't know if you would be our first governor in recovery, but you, you would bring a, a lens to it that others haven't previously. What policy choices would you make immediately given that we have measure 110 passed, given that I know the legislature has allocated a lot of funding in the last session, some of these pieces are already moving, but what could you do as governor to shift the policy landscape to provide better services and help more people get out of um, their addiction and into recovery? Well, you know, it's a complicated problem, but there are some things that can be done immediately. So I'm already uh, exploring uh, some of the things that are out there right now. I've spoken already with the person that's in charge of the Drug Policy Task Force for the governor. And if, if you may be aware that there's a, a huge report that has just was recently completed mm. that has just been set on the shelf by the governor. It's like, okay, thanks for getting that job done. They spent this whole entire team committee spent all this time collecting all this data and all the resources and making recommendations. And it has just been set aside. Now, granted, there are some other pressing issues, but- What's the report called or, uh, who, or who made it? The Drug Policy Task Force. Okay. Okay. And then I've also met with the people from the group called Oregon Recovers, which is a, all, both of these groups doing very good work for the most part, not being listened to, shall we say, by government. And I went and, and uh, toured the uh, Bybee Lakes Hope Center doing great work in terms of just straight shelter, which I think is a key piece of this. Uh, but to speaking to 110 first, one of the very first things I would do as governor is grab hold of the bully pulpit as hard as I could and make it clear to the legislature 
that this piece of that measure, not the funding part, we'll leave that be for now, but the piece of that measure that legalized hard drugs, that needs to be referred to the people again. The public thought they were helping. They did not help the situation. I firmly believe that if that was given back to the people for review, they would repeal the legalization of hard drugs. Potato, potato, it's decriminalization, it's legalization of hard drugs. Why, why do you think voters have changed their minds so quickly after it was passed? Well, first of all, there was, uh, what, about $2 million of uh, George Soros, Mark Zuckerberg money promoting it and almost zero opposing it because the treatment community was completely caught off guard and unprepared to handle that. That measure was written by New York attorneys for the justice, social justice reform movement across the country to experiment in our state with out-of-state money supporting it. And they did a masterful job of convincing the public that they were helping people that were homeless and that were drug addicts. It did not provide a single treatment bed and it did nothing but attract more drug addicts. And it ties the hands of the courts or the police to do anything to get, get these people up and off the streets and into treatment. And I know from experience, that's all I can say, I know from experience that the efforts by the drug courts to send people through treatment by, you know, diversion programs and all, they don't help everybody, but they help a lot of people. And if you don't have that tool, you're really in trouble. And the treatment community, as I said, was caught off guard. Also, I think what we've seen, I mean, is a an escalation of homelessness and addiction. We are not seeing mm -hmm. a decline, we're seeing it escalate. Yeah, so I actually wanted to ask you that next as it relates to addiction. And we've had both different Republican candidates and Democratic candidates who've come on the show and actually both sides of the aisle have advocated in some circumstance for what they call a housing first approach to homelessness, which is essentially in order to help people who are homeless or people who are potentially battling with addiction and homelessness, as many folks are, we need to get them in housing now, basically. I'm curious, just from your sort of unique lens of having struggled with, with addiction and have recovered, what would be your kind of response or your plan as governor to that? Like, do we need, you know, what does addressing the homeless situation look like, but also kind of playing into it with the addiction side of things as well? Well, and as you well know, housing and crime are completely intertwined because as someone who's been there and see and hears stories of myriad people coming through the treatment system, addicts are generally speaking, I, I actually worked almost up until the point that I uh, went into treatment, I had a job, but a lot of addicts, they're not, they're not working. Their job is, is, they steal them for a living. They don't work for a living. So we know that mm -hmm. crime is very intertwined. So the housing first, that method, that's the one that doesn't work, right? The housing first method, it does not work. We have 30 years of evidence and billions of dollars. We have been using the housing first approach since the early 90s. Has it worked? I mean, yes or no, nod your heads. No, Wait, you it think, has not worked. You think Oregon's been using housing first? Historically, look at at news reports, they have been using the housing first approach to the homeless problem since the early 90s. And they've poured billions of dollars into it. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a very good reason. Addicts and alcoholics, they are going, you give them a house, they're going to sell it. 
for drugs are going to sell it piece by piece or all at once or whatever. And they're certainly going to trash it. Definitely going to trash it. Because their problem is not a lack of housing. Their problem is addiction. And I would say, I mean, I think that Multnomah County did a, a, a survey. We've had a couple others. 80 to 90%, maybe in the 80 to 85 range of people that are homeless are addicts or alcoholics or both or whatever you want to, however you want to describe that, substance abuse problems. And so what's the solution? Well, in my view, the solution is number one, get rid of measure 110. We've got to repeal that measure. Number two, you flipped their model on its head. What they were doing is the house first, and then they were then they would try to provide some services and just plain old ordinary shelter. That's kind of at the bottom of the list. Now, my view is that in almost immediately we need to create large capacity, low barrier entry shelters where people can get be forced off the street. Period. End of story. No more laying around on the street. Now, I know in order to execute that. You have to have a database of available shelter space that is statewide so that the law enforcement can actually do that without violating the constitution. You can't take, a, you know, at least that's where we are right now. I believe that case is getting close to being possibly overturned in the other direction, but whatever for now. And no matter what, really, we should have a statewide database. What is the excuse for us not having one when other states do? God help me, I don't know. We should have had one years ago. And that would be, again, one of the very first things I would do by executive order. I'd direct one of the departments to put that database together immediately. Next, you create large capacity, low barrier shelters that can provide the simplest things that we would provide for feral dogs and cats. Shelter over their head, heat, cooling in the summer, Avail, you know, kitchen, available food, restroom facilities. Oh, and possibly even washers and dryers so they could clean their clothes instead of throwing them on the street when they're done with them. You wonder where all the, I mean, I took the tour a couple, I've taken a few actually at this point. Go out on the street and, and go visit some of these places because one of the very first things, this is a year ago, almost now, thinking, what's with all the garbage, you know? And it does, you, you walk down the street one time past one of these places and you can instantly realize, well, they don't have washers and dryers and, you know, they don't have closets and they, when they get wet, their stuff, they can't dry it. It's gone. It's done. One time use, we're over. It's over. So, and one of the other things I would say is when these people are in these shelters, there would be security provided for them and it is not optional. If you if you leave, you're out. You do not go back to the street. You'll be picked up instantly. I don't care how many times we have to rotate it until they figure out you can't do this anymore. You cannot be on the streets in our state anywhere. So that's the first wow. thing. Then the services come after that, not as part of having so-called housing. Are you kidding me? These people cannot take care. I speak from experience. I was so deeply in debt. You can't take care of a house, an apartment. You can't even take care of a motel room if you're an addict. Yeah, I appreciate the policy thoughts there. You, it sounds similar to Stan Pulliam's proposal, but actually a little bit different in terms of the services provided. Want to transition to 
a big topic that everyone's talking about because it's affecting all of our lives deeply, the pandemic. And particularly today, uh, this podcast will be coming out later, but President Biden has recently announced that all businesses over uh, 100 employees must require vaccinations or do weekly testing on employees. In Oregon, we're seeing some counties that are really struggling to vaccinate, get vaccinated, particularly in rural parts of the state. And the backdrop of this is hospital capacity that is very much endangered. I just saw an article saying in Northern Idaho, they, for the first time ever, they're rationing care, as in they're not able to give health care to all the people who need it. So again, <laughs> one of my friends frequently says, who in their right mind would want to be governor to deal with all of these things? But, but if you were governor... You're not telling me crazy, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll see. Depends on your answer here. Um, but if you're governor, you know, acknowledging the severity of the problem and the fact that um, we have a persistent vaccination problem, particularly in rural and conservative places in this state, as referenced by the Oregon Values and Belief Center survey, which basically says inclination to vaccinate has a lot to do with what one's political beliefs are. What would your thoughts or strategies be on how we could address that gap and inoculate more people to keep them safer and to keep our hospitals free for people who need health care? Well, there's no magic answer, I will say that. Yeah, because sure. uh, uh, first of all, let's talk about hospital capacity first. It is the problem. That is the problem is hospital capacity. And the fact that Oregon has allowed us to get to the point where we, we just don't even have nearly enough hospital capacity. You know, Bud and I actually, Bud Pierce and I ran into each other in the parking lot yesterday <laughs> and he was he you know he, he's doctor and he was saying what do we have 300 people uh in um I, you know i'm i am not sure if it was icus or intensive care but he was just saying in a state of four million that's it that this is just insane that this has been allowed to get to this point and i'll remind everybody listening who's been in charge for the last 40 years democrats have been in Salem and across the state in, in congressional, everything. So the fact that we have hospital capacity problems like that is really, um, should, it's an indictment against their leadership. But that's happening in Idaho and a uh, lot of- Maybe it is, too. and maybe they got problems too, but it's a huge problem here. So second thing, I have two friends that are nurses, um, and I won't name the hospital just so nobody gets in trouble here, but they're at one of the big hospitals in downtown Portland. One of them is about to be fired for not being vaccinated. Another of them is about to retire because she says, as she puts it, she's young to retire to. She's had it with taking care of all the gunshot victims and the victims of violence that are coming through the hospital. So, but the one that's, that's being fired for not getting vaccinated, now you know, what is it, almost 30% of healthcare workers across the country not vaccinated? That should tell people something about, you know, people's choices that they're making about the safety of the vaccine. Now, me, I am pro-vaccine. I'm vaccinated. I would advocate that people get vaccinated, but I'm also 68 years old, and I, I can read the data that's coming across, and I know the risk category that I'm in. I would encourage everyone to get vaccinated. But I think it's absolutely unconstitutional for the government to tell anyone that they must get vaccinated. And, and so I, I did want to ask to Bridget, because this just came out maybe an hour and 30 minutes, maybe two hours ago from I, I always tell our guests to not to date anything. And then Ben just dated something and I just <laughs> dated something. So we're, we're doing a great job. But 
the Biden administration either is coming out or just came out with an executive order requiring all employers with 100 plus employees to either have all of their employees vaccinated or have weekly tests or face will look like pretty astronomical fines. I think the number is like fourteen or $15,000. I imagine from what you had just said, you're opposed to any sort of mandated vaccination. Yes. Uh, what would you do as governor to either sort of fend that off from the Biden administration or basically like, would you help businesses like get out of these fines or oppose these fines? Just kind of curious of what you would basically do there since this is going, this would be something that's implemented by OSHA. Uh, and, you know, Biden from his speech today seems pretty serious on moving this forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would support businesses fighting it if they choose to. So I would support businesses in fighting it. This is not something that you can mandate. One of the other things we wanted to ask about, and we asked uh, Dr. Pierce about this, although your situations are are slightly different, it appears, is, is campaign finance. We just saw that you, I believe, have passed Dr. Pierce to be the the leading fundraiser on the Republican side. So congratulations. I know that is not easy work to... Not, to, not, not easy. Not easy or fun work to raise money in political campaigns, um, but certainly critical for determining who's going to win an election. We, I think we all know people who've been in politics, you have to raise money to win. So a couple questions on that. One, there's a contribution that some people in the political circles have been asking about, the $150,000 from Oregon Pathfinder and who that is or what that is and um, what's your involvement with them. And then the follow-up is a more broad question about what do you think of Oregon's campaign finance system? And would you support making changes to that system, setting contribution limits or some other mechanism that the legislature has been frequently discussing? So question one is about the Oregon Pathfinder contribution. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then two, broadly, campaign finance reform, how do you think about the issue? Oregon Pathfinder is a 501c4. Are you able to say who those donors were that funded that or just that? Yeah, let's cut, let's cut that off at the past because I know that I can see the things get dark money. Dark money in politics, right. right. Uh, So it's not dark money. Mm -hmm. We just, that actually was uh, formed uh, solely uh, by funds from Hank Swigert, who is a longtime business leader in the state. His brother, Ernie, built the uh, Humane Society shelter out there in Columbia. Uh, just a very, very good long-term Oregon family. And as he was aging, he decided to put a large chunk of his money into that foundation to promote leadership in the state. He felt strongly that the state lacked real leadership and that there was too much of this, what we, you know, the partisan bickering and the polarization that we see and not the, you know, sort of old school leadership in the positive direction, no matter what. So that's what that is all about. And, but campaign finance is an interesting one because I find, you know, I've been involved in sort of on both sides, giving, getting, taking. Oregon has some of the most transparent reporting laws in the country. For, I mean, you can find out who you right now could go online, which you just apparently did, and find out who gave me what for my campaign and how much and what it was for. And everything is so transparent. So, all these efforts to what they call limit campaign contributions, they never do that. They just cause it to be hidden. Super I think, yeah, I think we have, yeah, you get 527 super packs. I, I think we have the best and most transparent campaign finance laws in the country and why we would want to mess with them, I don't know. You can see who's doing what every single time. If you want to know, just look. If you don't like it, 
don't fall for that person. That, yeah. I, that's my view on campaign finance. It's very straightforward right now. We'll yeah. muck it up if we go a different route. Yeah, and, and Bridget, we know that we we have to let you go uh, in just a second before we get in trouble potentially by your staff. Uh, so before we <laughs> let you do that, where can people find out more about you if they want to learn more about you, if they want to volunteer for your campaign, maybe they want to donate, maybe they want to see your issues. Uh, where's the place that, where's the place folks should go to, call, to follow Thank you. you? Thank you for that opportunity. Um, Bridget Barton for Oregon.com. Simple as that, Bridget Barton for Oregon.com. And oh my gosh, time flew. That was so fun. We have to do it again. It was really fun. Thank Very you. cool. Well, thank you for, for making time to chat with us. Best of luck in, in your race. It's a competitive race in the on the Republican side. There's a lot of candidates raising money and going out and campaigning. So well, uh, maybe so, but I'm going to win it. <laughs> well, if you do, we will have you back in the general election and we'll uh, we'll talk more. And maybe we'll do it before then, too. Maybe we'll sure. uh, we'll get some people together. So yeah, I'd love to. And if not, I'll see you in the general. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Bridget. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in one more time. Uh, Please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating if the platform allows for that. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.